we're in the middle of a series on what non-Christians think of Christianity. Let me show you the roadmap of where we are. Last week, we covered the criticism that Christians are too sheltered and they live in a bubble. We spent time on that. Tonight, we're taking on what shows up in a lot of surveys, usually right at the very top, that Christians are judgmental and hypocritical. Next week, we're talking about them being too political and anti-homosexual, which is why it might be good on Saturday night for us to go hear that speaker together so we could evaluate them as a group and come back in and talk about that as well. I think that's a great invitation that Morgan's put out. The week after that, Morgan's taking the helm. Morgan's going to be talking about Christians being seen as arrogant and fundamentalists. And then we're going to move into kind of wind down with too focused on decisions for salvation and just talking about what the church should look like, what does it look like to outsiders, and what might it look like. Let's do this to start. We haven't done this in a while. Let's do a quick survey. Let me pass out some cards. You want to pass some of these out? Okay, what I want you to do is take the card. Got a pen now. Here's the question that was asked. As a Christian, what priorities do you think are important for you to pursue in terms of your faith? I want you to pick the top two. You could go to three. You could order them if you want, but what I really want you to do is pick what you think are the top two or three, and here's the choices you have. The top priorities as a Christian. You have worship, worshiping God and singing praises. Family faith, discipling your children and shaping family faith. Discipleship, which is learning about Christ and the Bible. Service, serving others, helping the poor. Lifestyle, doing good, being good, avoiding sin. Evangelism, sharing your faith, leading others to Christ. Stewardship, giving money, time, resources to others. Relationships, loving others, making and keeping friends. Take a few moments and look at those and pick what you think. If someone were to ask you what the top priorities of, in Christianity and your faith are, put down what you think the top two or three are. Everybody good? Okay, hang on to those for a little bit. We'll come back to them in just a few seconds. Remember that a couple of weeks ago when we introduced this topic, we put up on the board those attitudes that non-Christians thought Christians possessed. And remember we said, since we're focusing today on judgmentalism, hypocrisy, we found that 87% of non-Christians thought that Christians were judgmental. 85% thought they were hypocritical. That's why we're focusing in on this this week. Because it seems that right at the top, the only thing that beats it out is anti-homosexual, the way we're perceived. So this is something that a lot of people have a problem with. By the way, if you look at Christians and how they rated the same type of questions, even among Christians, 52% thought that Christians were too judgmental. And 47% thought that they were too hypocritical. So we apparently also believe it's a problem. So let's ask you, why do you think it is that Christians are perceived as hypocrites? Now open it up. Why do you think that we're perceived as hypocrites? Joe. You want to go with um, the judgmental factor. Christians are always seen as condemning people who are sinners and um, saying you're going to hell because you're bad, but then you turn around and look and Christians are doing the exact same thing, sometimes in greater numbers. So you're saying the way we behave 
doesn't match what we're saying? Is that what you're, okay. Anyone else? Ben? I just wanted to add up the projects and we judge ourselves pretty harshly. And especially if we're talking about the faith where um, it's dependent on mercy and, and forgiveness. But then we go around saying, like, you're bad because of this. Like, where's the grace and mercy in that? Okay. Let's focus on hypocrisy for a moment. What is hypocrisy? Saying one thing and doing another is the most common definition given. Anyone else want to throw something else on why Christians are that way? Yeah. Most people that are perceived as Christians aren't Christians. Okay, so you think there's a lot of people that are like in the fold, quote unquote, and you're saying what? Well, they give the impression to everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike, um, that they are Christians and they say one thing because they're giving that impression, but they don't act that way. Okay. I want to highlight what Philip just said because there's a belief in the church that there's a lot of false Christians within the church and they give Christians a bad name or they say they're Christians but they're not. It's a valid observation. At least people say that. I'm going to test if that's true tonight because I want to make sure it's right. Any other theories on why we're seen as hypocritical? I mean, I think like there's different levels of, of faith, you know, people's walk. So like I think to one Christian... They could look at somebody else and think what they're doing is bad, but to that person, they don't think what they're doing is bad. So I think there's like this circle motion that there's always going to be hypocrisy because like even though we have the same foundation of faith, to one person, it's going to mean something else. To another person, it's going to mean something else. There's hypocrisy, and I think like, I feel like there also are Christians who call themselves Christians who are, you know, saying one thing and doing another. And I think like, you know, I'm an example of that. Like, I'm not perfect, you know, and I'll sit there and I'll say something and then... Let me, let me... Let me see if I can pull out of what you just said something that we can understand. <laughs> I think if I understand what you're saying, we're not perfect and we sin, so if people see that, that's going to lead them to charge us with hypocrisy? I think sometimes yes, sometimes it's an easy way out so they don't accept Christianity. Okay. So sometimes it's real and sometimes it's just perceived. Yeah. There's a difference in practice, even within the traditions. So even if you have two people who are Christian, you can have enough difference in practice that even amongst Christians, you know, you can judge one another as hypocritical. So an obvious example is uh, Christians who drink uh, wine and those who don't, you know. And so there can be a level of hypocrisy and a level of judgmentalism in that when it's really not even an issue. But they make an issue because it's a difference in theory or it's, I mean, it's a difference in, in pra practice. Okay. Let's ask the next question. How many people in here would consider themselves a hypocrite? Raise your hand. Why? Why are so many of you raising your hands? Yeah. By saying that you're a Christian and by saying that you're following the things in the Bible, like you don't necessarily have to like preach every single thing in the Bible, but by saying that you follow what's in the Bible, doesn't that automatically make you a hypocrite if you don't do anything that's in the Bible? you're saying that makes you a hypocrite because you claimed you're going to follow this and you don't. So under your definition, you'd have to live a sinless life not to be a hypocrite or just say, I'm not living by this. Well, I think you, yeah. I mean, I think everybody to some extent is a hypocrite and to like recognize that you are like, I am a sinner. I am a hypocrite. I'm going to say something and completely fail a lot of the time because I am a sinner just like everybody else. Okay. Yeah. I define myself as a Christian. I don't think, I don't believe that that's saying to anyone that I will do everything that's in the Bible. It's saying I will try to do everything that's in the Bible. 
And if you say you're going to try to do something and you fail, it doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. I'm still trying to. It might not be trying as hard as I could, but I'm still trying. Like, there's a difference between trying something and actually doing it. Jeremy? I would add with Phil that it's not even enough to say, yes, I'm doing what's in the Bible. Well, what do you mean by that? You know, your interpretation of what you're supposed to be doing, or a certain theological <coughs> perspective, a certain historical, I mean, there's so much that goes into that. It's not even enough to say, oh, well, I'm doing what's in the Bible, because that means different things. And again, it means different things within the tradition. And, and I think, again, that gets back to at least what I think Ryan's point was. Is This, is, this is how theology begins in the church. Like, one person <laughs> says something and 10 people interpret it, you know? Well, I, well, I want to validate that, because I think that if we are beating up, right, on ourselves in these sessions, right, kind of reflecting on the things that we're not good at as Christians, and, and how we're perceived by non-Christians, then we also need to realize that a lot of things we do to each other Maybe it's not hypocrisy, it's an issue in interpretation. I don't know. Okay, Brian? I feel like when Jesus addressed hypocrisy, he addressed it to the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders, who were the people that were the icons of the message. And they were the ones perceived as the holy people, but they weren't, their hearts weren't right. Their hearts were hard toward what was going on. Because I feel like Jesus was more pointing toward those people who stand at the pulpit and go, Jesus loves you, but you know, let's live holy, but you're you're not living holy yourself, then you have no right to really be saying anything to those kind of people. And Jesus looked right through that. So I feel like there's more of a judgment toward people that are that are standing there in the the spotlight, you know, representing Christ. Okay, last comment. From a non-Christian's point of view, though, they all think that we are hypocrites because they all think that we were trying to do everything that the Bible uh, says. So that's why they think that we're hypocrites. We all understand, because we're all Christians, we all understand that it's trying, but they look at it as we're supposed to be doing and we're not. Let's go to that point. Look at your cards for a moment. This is what the surveys revealed, that 37% of Christians, Christians, when asked what is the priority of Christianity, said the priority was being good and not sinning. Now before you get too excited about having that answer, that just shows the depth in which some people, sorry brother, some people don't get it. If you don't hear a single thing I'm going to say tonight, listen to this. The fact that so many Christians think Christianity is about being good and not sinning is the root of the entire problem of our hypocrisy and judgment. I'm going to show you that right now. Look at it this way. Ryan already correctly identified what most people who are asked about what it means to be a hypocrite, because everybody says Christians are hypocritical. The follow-up is, what does it mean to be a hypocrite? And they say, it means saying one thing but doing another. We got that. That's the shorthand of hypocrisy that people throw out. So why does that lead is such a difficult thing for us because we're saying that Christianity is about being good and not sinning. That's the message that people hear. They don't hear about discipleship or evangelism. I mean, they might hear about evangelism when you walk on the street and accost them, but I mean, they're not hearing about the other things. From an outside perspective, what people see about Christianity is it's about being good and not sinning. 
If you put that down, you're in good company. 37% of Christians agreed, young Christians that were surveyed. So a little bit over a third of Christians thought that's what Christianity is about. So when you broadcast that to people, they say, okay, well, let's see how you're doing on that. Are you being good and not sinning? And of course, we already heard from people saying, well, we all sin, we all mess up. So immediately they say, you're not doing what you say. The result is this, we're held to our own standard. The result is that people discover that Christians are no different than anyone else, and we're labeled as hypocrites. People write off Christianity in Christ. Why? Because we told them that it was about being good. Now, did every single person in this room tell them? No. But that's the message that's out in the culture. And you need to know that, because if you know what message they're receiving, you think, well, how did they receive the message? Because the majority of Christians think that broadcast that message. It's no wonder they hold us up to that standard. Okay, let's see how you're doing. Not doing too good. Now, of course, we have great examples out in the culture, too. Of course, we have the big leaders of Christianity that everybody's always watching when they screw up, like the whole thing. Ah, I see, I knew it. Somebody said, it's probably an excuse. I think it was Ryan. You said it might be an excuse that people use hypocrisy because they don't really want to believe in God. Yeah, maybe it is an excuse, but we're the ones giving it to them. Why are we giving them the excuse? But when we set ourselves on a standard like the standard of Christianity is about being good and not sinning, and then one of our leaders falls into sin, public sin, sin that's splashed all over the newspapers. They look at it and they go, ah, you see, one of the chief proponents of that religion that's all about doing good is really not good at all. Yeah. In my defense, isn't that the standard that God's given us, though? I don't think he gave us that the primary objective of your life is to be good and not sin. That's one of the fruits of the Christian life. I'm not throwing it out. I'm not saying we can just sin. But we already know the answer. Jesus told the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? There's nobody good but God. If you're trying to a standard of goodness, remember, we're the ones that tell everybody, you'll never be good enough, you'll never be good enough, right? We tell them that in evangelism efforts, and yet a lot of people describe Christianity about trying to be good. Let me just show you something else in response to an earlier point. Sometimes we live under this delusion, which has already been kind of thrown out there, or at least we like to hide behind it, that, well, there's a lot of people who are Christians who say they're Christians, but they do bad things, so it gives us a bad name. This was a survey done among born-again Christians who self-identified themselves as born-again Christians. So we're not just talking about people who just nominally go to church once in a while. These are people who said, I'm a born-again Christian. Here are their attitudes about the following behaviors. Cohabitation. 59% said that was morally acceptable. Gambling, 58%, acceptable. Sexual thoughts or fantasies, 57%, acceptable. Sex outside of marriage, 44%, yep, sure, why not? Using profanity, 37%. Getting drunk, 35%. Viewing pornography, 33%. Having abortion, 32%. Having a same-sex relationship, 28%. Now, these are younger, born-again Christians, Age groups 23 to 41. So I don't know that we could actually say that it's okay to just believe that there's just some few bad apples that give everybody a bad name. I think that theory's right. We have some examples of public figures who've been disgraced within the church, and everybody likes to use those examples. I thought of bringing a whole bunch of them in, and I thought, wait a minute. No, that's just dumb. We know what they are. We don't need to point to the examples that have come down. Let's point and look rightly at ourselves. These are the attitudes of our generation. Thankfully, I'm still in the range here. I haven't fallen out of that range yet. 
So I could actually say with a smile, our generation, <laughs> this survey. And this was conducted, by the way, with like, this is conducted by the Barner Research Group, not some goofy search on the internet or using SurveyMonkey. I mean, they did a scientific study of people in the church and their attitudes. And some of these, if you look at them, they should kind of shock us a little bit, but they don't because we're in this age group and we know how people feel about these things, about sex and profanity and pornography and stuff. We kind of know that many times what we are doing, not just what people think we're doing, but what we're actually doing is what sets us up. We're the good, not sin religion, and these are our attitudes. Do people know that? Of course they do. 85% of young non-Christians said they knew at least one Christian. Most of them knew several Christians. And when asked, do you think that Christians live any kind of different lifestyle than your other friends? Only 15% of them thought that there was any difference in their life. Look, the point of this list, I'm not trying to say, yes, I am trying to say, these should not be things that God's people are doing, okay? But even if you were to quibble and say, well, I'm not so sure that God's people, for example, shouldn't gamble or shouldn't use profanity. Like, who made that rule anyway? Okay, like if we took that approach. And some Christians do take that approach. The damage is not so much if you want to be one of those Christians. The damage is if Christianity as a whole, and unfortunately none of us get to control what's out there, but if the message is that these things are bad and that Christians shouldn't do them, and this is being broadcast in society, but then you know, for gambling, 58%, or for profanity, 37% of Christians feel like it's okay to do them, and let's assume that not only do they feel okay to do them, they're doing them, then that's what gives us that sense of hypocrisy again. So, yeah, maybe some of you think, eh, not all of these are bad. Raise your hand, tell us who you are so we can judge you. All right. <laughs> all right, here's my pitch, because I don't want to just keep bagging on this thing until we give a fix. One of the fixes that's recommended by the book on Christian is for us to adopt a level of transparency in the church. Because some of you identified this. I think Philip was kind of hitting down that point. Like if you say, I'm trying to do these things, and you're showing your struggle to try to do them, no one's going to really hold you down as a hypocrite if you are still trying and you're not making it. I think it's when we put on the Christian costume and start walking around like we've got it all figured out that people are the most tempted to try to knock us down. Because that's when we rightfully are, are calling that kind of attack on ourselves. I think people respect trying and improving, and that's what that transparency is. But there's three ways to look at it. Transparency, one, without glorifying sin. I think some of you respect people who are transparent, really talk about things the way they are in their own struggles. But it should never get to the point so that we can all celebrate it together and celebrate the sin or make it scandalous. It really is meant to show transparency, like we're all in this. Leads to the second one. Transparency with the right motivation, trying to show that we're all trying because we need Christ, not because we're going to do it on our own, not because we can be good on our own, not because any of us will be good enough, but because it highlights how much we all need Jesus. You know, the most common examples of hypocrisy always seem to be church leaders. Is it because church leaders are more sinful than the people in their congregations? No. It's because church leaders feel like they're the person who can be the least transparent. They feel like they have all this pressure not to be open and say, last night I had a really tempting thought and I ended up having sexual fantasies about somebody. That's not the way to start a sermon in most churches. There, they agree, right? <laughs> That's horrible. 
That's why when a church leader falls, it's such a big event because they were never transparent. But if you saw who they were and that they, like every other person, needs Christ, it wouldn't be so tragic. Third one, transparency is supposed to lead to something like restoration. Like not just to be open about our sin and go, hey, look at me, look at you, we're all sinners and just kind of get into a big sin group and hug. And you know, The idea is it's supposed to lead to restoration where we help people Say, hey, you're like me. We have the same issues. We can work on this. It's okay. You can come as you are. Christ accepts all of, accepts all of us as we are. All right, I'm going to push on. Judgmentalism. The question's the same for judgmentalism. Here's why. If we, as a church, are broadcasting that we're supposed to be good and not sin, if that's like the number one thing that people are kind of reaching in, no wonder we become so judgmental of each other and of other people. Because all we're focusing on is are they good or are they sinning? Why is the church judgmental? Anyone want to throw out an answer? Why are we perceived as so judgmental? Some of you started to answer that earlier. Yeah. I think there's another one too because of our culture as far as a lot more pluralism or just more... Um, you know, everyone has their own morals. We're more and more okay with everyone having different morals and saying everyone's right at the same time. So I do think there is a system of, you know, Christians claim a more universal or authoritarian, like this is the way we're supposed to live. And then you place that upon, like, we think that this is what God wants for all people. And so immediately by even saying that, you're judgmental because my morals aren't the king anymore. It's, it's according to this Bible or, you know, whatever. So that's part of it. Okay. Anyone else? I think we're perceived as judgmental because most Christians are judgmental. Because we are. We are. But why are we? Partially because what you're saying there is like that, that's seen as the, our outer perception of being good and the actions we do, they're the easiest thing to point to. They're the easiest thing people can identify. And I think most people just don't understand Christianity fully enough that, well, it's the same idea. as like if you criticize someone else, you feel better about yourself. I mean, like you say, hey, look, that person, like, has a worse situation than I do, so I feel better. I mean, it's partially just influence of that. Okay, yeah. I, also, I agree with that. And I also think there's just some self-righteousness on our part where if someone's not a Christian and you're going to say you are being judged according to my standards, that is an arrogant thing to say. That is an, a judgmental thing to say. You know, who said they ever signed up for Christianity? Like, you know, who said they ever, you know, and so we put that on top of them. Instead of first saying, you know, yes, I do think this is what God wants for all people. Yes, you know, these sort of things. But, but what's our right to judge them, judge them according to our standards? And so there's this just a self-righteous, like, this is how you're supposed to live. And we've decided this and they haven't. And there's a huge gap okay. there. Yeah, Kimmel. Something I've noticed um, about myself is that it's easy to kind of assign which sins are worse than others. And so if I'm adhering, you know, and I'm not doing the bad ones, then it makes me feel better about myself to judge, oh, those girls are doing this or that, or that person did this. And it's so, you kind of give yourself more credit because you're not doing the big things that we view are worse. Um, when in the end, you know, well, what am I, what am I doing? It's easy to be judgmental in that case because you're kind of grading yourself against these worst sins you think are worse, um, but that we've been told are worse. Yeah, or told, I like that, we're told they're worse. Ben, do you have a comment? I've had conversations with Christians, and I totally agree with their standpoint, but 
like you can't even have a discussion with someone on certain issues where it's just like, what do you think about this? And here's my stance, and there's no other way. And I think that just the perception of the way it comes out can be viewed as judgmental. Yeah. There's two types of judgmentalism I want to point to right now. There is the judgment that we kind of use against each other in the church and outside. This is the one in the church. We tend to fight all the time and judge other Christians within the church. Now, when I say we, I don't think I mean too many people in here. But as a church universal, we do this all the time. And we tend to judge outsiders as well. And this type of judgment is so destructive. He sums it up like this, and I, and I, and I want to read this. It says, Our judgmental attitude arises because we are trying to look good in front of other Christians instead of before God. And we don't care about outsiders to Christianity. That's David Kinnaman summarizing why he finds so much judgmentalism in the church. Let me read it again. Our judgmental attitude arises because we are trying to look good in front of other Christians instead of before God. And we don't care about outsiders to Christianity. How many people spend their life trying to look good to other Christians? Yeah. I just think that's so insightful, even in my own sin. I am very ashamed when I get caught by another person. And yet, when, when I mean, God sees everything. He knows every sin. And it's like, I don't feel ashamed half as often as when I'm caught by another person who looks me in the face and says, like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, that just speaks, you know, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and that's why accountability works, but that's not the same thing as judgment, right? right? Well, I mean, let's go through and let's show you a couple examples. Here's one. person was criticized for working within a church because it was seeker-sensitive. They couldn't work with another church or because they disagreed on secondary doctrine. So the church's stance was, you guys can't work with that church at all. We just need to separate from them and not have anything to do with them. Here's another one. Criticism for a woman working with HIV AIDS relief because the church believed she would be manipulated by homosexual activists. <laughs> Criticism by a church board member that the church's inner city ministry attracted too many black kids. Yeah. Here's another one. Criticism of those who dialogue respectfully with those from other faiths. Just give you an example of that. Morgan and I were up going up on the retreat. We were listening to a CD that I had in my car. Where I mean, in half an hour, this guy was ripping to shred like three or four of the major Christian leader, author type people out there. The title of his talk was "What's Wrong with the Church," and then he spent the first half an hour ripping everybody else he could think of that had written a book recently and why they were wrong. And if you listen to the end of his discussion, he intimates that we need to pierce them with a spear. Yeah, it was just, I, I didn't even understand where this guy was coming from. He's using a biblical example that I didn't even think connected about somebody in the Old Testament who had pierced the sinners with a spear, and he kept repeating that that's really what we need to do with some of these Christian leaders like Rick Warren, Chuck Colson, uh, who are some of the, I mean, he just kept going after people that are just believed a little differently than he did. And why did he go after somebody like Chuck Colson? Because he was having dialogue with other people from other faiths. Why did he go after Ravi Zacharias? That was another one because he was trying to reach out and have dialogue with the Mormon church. Far be it from us to reach out to anybody outside of our fundamentalist beliefs. Here's just some other things, and Jeremy was highlighting some of these earlier. Depends on what you believe about some of these things. Here are some hot-button issues that people think about. I mean, I've seen people judge people because 
their church allows dancing. This is what I call the pre-Footloose churches, right? They haven't seen Footloose yet, all right? That great theological work starring Kevin Bacon where he espoused David's theology so beautifully before the city council. Yeah, dancing, drinking. Yeah, you're just you're you're a sinner, not a sinner, a heretic if you believe certain things. How about smoking? Worship styles. If you use drums, heck some churches if you use any instruments at all. If you use anything but organ. Where did we get this from? All this pointing of fingers at each other. Translation preferences. Yeah, here's a book. This guy wrote an entire book. I, can't, I had to bring it in. I'm going to call him out. No, I can't say his name. I'm just, this is bad. This guy wrote an entire book about how bogus Rick Warren's purpose-driven life is. He wrote a whole book on it. He's so angry. He spends the first 40 pages of this book just describing how bad the message is by Eugene Peterson and how the King James Bible is the only Bible we should be citing from. And anybody who cites from any inferior translation or the modern translations, 40 pages. You know what's wrong? You know, some people have asked me why it is that I get so amped up over this subject about like the King James only. It's not because I don't think that there's any value to the King James. It's just that anybody who picks a translation and sticks their whole theology on a translation only, it's not the original. It's a translation. The guy wrote 40 pages trying to justify why that was the only Bible we should be citing from, and then seeks to rip apart everybody. And I'm, I'm just reading page after page of this guy ripping somebody else. You know what? Spend your time doing something better. How many people could we have been reaching out to and touching, doing something better than spending all this time writing books that just rip other Christians? Over what? Now, I'm not a big fan of Rick Warren, but I'm not going to write a book about it we got so much more to do. Baptism. How many people in our churches differ over this to the point where they call other people not Christian because somebody sprinkles or immerses or they're infants or they're believers when they get baptized or some people do... It doesn't matter. Do you know that there's churches that believe if you have a tattoo or a piercing, you cannot be saved? Yeah, some of you are going to hell for sure. Wearing black... People told, hey, you can't wear black. No, no, you're okay wearing a black t-shirt, but if you're goth, you're, that's it, you're out. You're worshiping the dead. <laughs> Some churches tell you that if a man has long hair, that he can't really be a Christian. Apparently, they've ripped out the entire Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, and new. Because we all know that Jesus had the long mane, you know. <laughs> Teaching styles. I've heard people rip people because they use PowerPoint. I've heard people rip people because they have a skit. I, yeah, you know what? That's exactly right. Philip. I'm having a little bit of trouble with this, only because like, as a Christian, it's, I can live how I'm supposed to live, but I think I also have some responsibility to encourage them to live how they should be living. And part of that is judging them. And again, like judging has a bad connotation, but part of that is calling them out on, hey, you shouldn't be doing this this way. And Yes, I might not split a church over like infant baptism over believers baptism or whatever, you know, like people do disagree about that. And we should be striving to judge people on those to try and determine what is correct. Not necessarily, like, there has to be a line of how you're approaching it that we shouldn't divide on every single thing. Somebody want to respond to that? 
I have a question. Are you judging them or are you calling them out on it because you're trying to keep them accountable for their actions? I think those are just different connotations, like the same idea. Because what does judging mean? I'll tell you what it means in this context. These aren't just small things. These are things that split entire denominations. But when we've split the church into so many fragments over these issues, because of the way that we judge who is a Christian and who is not, as if any of these things determine them, by the way, an outsider is standing there watching as we break into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces with all of the pieces fighting against each other. So even if they wanted to get in on this, they're just watching this whole thing thinking, all right, when you guys are finished fighting, just tell me which one of you is the one, right? If there is one left. Or, more realistically what happens is an outsider looks at it and goes, they're all ridiculous. You cannot, there cannot be any truth to a movement that breaks up into millions of pieces over this. That can't be anything I want to be a part of. AJ. Um, kind of what uh, Phil's talking about, uh, judgment and accountability, I think there is a big difference. I think when you're holding someone accountable, it's not because you care. You're saying, you know what, I care about you. I'm, I'm going to call you out on this because I think what you're doing maybe isn't the best thing. Where as far as judging, you're calling them out, but pointing the finger, saying, you know what, you're wrong for this. And not necessarily because you care about them, but because as Christians, sometimes we feel like, hey, you know what, we need to judge other people, making them feel like, hey, you know what, like, maybe I don't want to be a Christian if I'm being judged all the time. And I think that's what turns people off. Yeah, I think Jesus had his own words about judgment, about looking into the speck of your neighbor's eye versus the plank in your own. And I think he was talking about that for a reason, because that attitude that he was highlighting was one, like you said, that's not done in love or a desire to see somebody change their behavior in the right way. Yeah. I think the biggest problem is, is exactly what you're saying. Like, to, to what level does that matter? And is that breaking our fellowship with each other? Is there a way to look at, let's say, drinking, where some Christians say, no, absolutely not, and some say it's totally fine as long as you're not drunk, whatever those different lines are. Is there a way to disagree that still brings us into fellowship and still says, hey, we disagree on this issue, but it's okay. You know, like, like this, is not a not, this is not an essential issue to the point where I can't come to the table with you anymore. Because that's, to me, the real big problem that's going on all the time. I think that's, we can define judgment in this way going off of both of what you guys said. I think the real judgment comes when you say you cannot be a Christian if you put in the blank. Now there are some that we rightly have to hold to. If they affect the foundation of the faith and salvation and doctrines of that level, then sure. If someone says there is no trinity, we can't just say, hey, whatever you believe is fine. But when someone says you cannot be a Christian and believe in dancing, that's judgment. Ben. Good. I think it's in the motive and the attitude. The motive being to correct someone and the attitude being love. I think that's the difference, not divisiveness. When somebody writes that book, it's really clearly written. If you read it, you'll know right away. It's written to basically attack. There's nothing about it that builds up. There's nothing about it that invites. There's nothing about it where the motivation is, let's get through this so we can see other people come to Christ. The motivation is, you're wrong, and I'm going to show it to everybody. There's nothing in there that's love. There's nothing in there that's correction in a good way. So the whole motive and the attitude is missing. Let me just move forward a second. You guys know this statement. Dan Kimball in his book, They Like Jesus But Not the Church, 
makes this statement, and I think it's really true about judgment. We're most often known by what we're against, not what we're for. So like in hypocrisy, when we advertise a message to the world that we're good and we don't sin, and of course they find out we're just as broken as everybody else, they write us off. In judgment, what happens a lot is we're spending so much time talking about what we're against instead of what we're for. The church is known by this, right? You guys know all these things. Bunch of people carrying signs. You have never carried a sign. Anybody here carried a sign before? Just checking. But the problem is, does it matter that none of you have ever done this? Carried a sign that says, God hates fags, God hates sodomites, death penalty to homosexuals, God hates you, God hates America. I don't even understand this one over here. God blew up the shuttle. I don't even understand that one. A little kid carrying a sign. Why is a five-year-old carrying a sign that God blew up the shuttle? Like, What does God have against the space shuttle? I mean, how would you like it if you were like, were, were, like, you're one of the families that lost somebody on the space shuttle? And some kid is carrying a sign saying, God blew up the shuttle. Why would God hate the shuttle? <laughs> anyway, this is cartoonish behavior. None of you actually engage in this. But does it matter? Because these people speak on your behalf. These are the other graduates from the same school with the diploma you have, remember? These people speak on your behalf. Because no matter what we do or no matter how we act, somebody out there is holding a sign speaking on your behalf. I don't know. That's a difficult one to stop. I mean, I, you guys know this, I put up this. Being judgmental comes from two places. It comes from pride and it comes from fear. A lot of it is pride. We think we're right, everybody else is wrong, and we, 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 we're going to tell them. We're going to make sure of it. We're better than them. If you see people who are disassociating over small issues, I can guarantee you there's pride. That everybody else is inferior to them. They don't know as much. They don't worship the right God. They don't have the right translation. They don't have the right Bible. They don't have the right understanding of God. Whatever it is, there's pride. But there's also fear. Jeremy and I were talking about this before we started tonight. You know, there's a lot of people who get so bent out of shape when you challenge something that they believe. Or when you say something that doesn't quite fit into their paradigm. It's fear. It's because their minds, they finally got it just right where they understand it exactly the way they want as if God could ever fit into the box of their little mind or ours. And the minute something starts to move, they get really angry and upset and they start to call you out and they start to look for reasons not to, to associate with you because you're disturbing the way they finally got everything nice and neat. They're scared. I don't know how you solve that in our churches. Is it too late? We've broken into so many pieces over so many issues. And the more you read what people think about each other in the church, the more you just want to throw up your hands and go, ah, I don't, there's no way you could reconcile these people. And meanwhile, why am I bringing up all this bad news? Because there's billions of people watching this happen every day thinking, I'm writing that thing off. That's ridiculous. It does matter what we're doing. It does matter. Dan Kimball in his book writes about a kid he saw in the airport. Kid's sitting there, he's got a t-shirt on, and it has the word intolerant on it, in the front. And underneath it it says, Jesus says. And on the back of his shirt, it says, Islam is a lie, homosexuality is a sin, something like that. I mean, just in bold letters. So he sees this kid, and, you know, he's kind of disturbed by it, but everybody in line on the whole plane as he's standing in line sees it. He's proud of it. 
he gets on the plane and Dan walks up to him as he's sitting in the seat and he says to him, he asks him about the shirt. And of course, this guy is so happy that he's wearing the shirt. And he asks Dan, are you a Christian? Dan goes, yeah, I'm a Christian. And he goes, praise God. And he says, yeah, but you know what? I'd never be caught wearing a shirt like that. And the kid just keeps smiling and says, but somebody's got to tell him the truth. Dan asks him, has anybody ever repented, you think? because of that shirt? And he goes, no, but that's not my job. My job is just to speak the truth. The Holy Spirit will convict him. Actually, what the kids said was, if only one person gets saved as a result of my shirt, it was worth wearing it. Not wanting to hold up the line that was starting to build up behind him on the plane, he just sat down. Do you hear what he was thinking? What are the kid not understanding? What's missing there? 20,000 people that walk away. How many people have been repelled by that shirt? Yeah, if one person came to Christ, a lot of things would be worth it. But he was totally missing the fact that probably 20, 30, 50, 350, how many people are on that plane? Would never consider it. Totally repelled, like you slam the door in their face because of this. That's the problem with it. Let's read some of the scripture verses for a second. So I can stop talking. You can hear somebody wiser than me. Ryan made reference to this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That's kind of harsh language from Jesus. I looked at these words this afternoon. These words kind of struck me pretty heavily. But that does kind of sound like our churches today, don't they? I know they were written to the Pharisees. We're screwing up the people right around us. Again, Jesus in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me. Through their message, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. Let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Why do we need to be unified? Why is Jesus praying for our unity? Because... He says, so that. There's a so that in there. So that the world may believe that you sent me. If we're not unified by implication, Jesus is saying if we're not unified, no one will know that I was sent. He says it more explicitly. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. By implication, our lack of unity, our turning against each other, our judgmentalism against each other, no wonder no one's buying into this. No one believes that God sent Jesus because we can't even stick together, just as he said. Galatians 6.14, the entire law summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. We seem to be really good at that one. How can we be transparent with people? 
you're fighting two things at the same time, one of which you might be able to control. You've got all of Christianity perceived by the outside world as a religion of rules, regulations, and being good. Remember, we said that as soon as you identify yourself as a Christian, you're handed with a bunch of baggage. It's just attached to you. You're these things that people identify. That's just who you are. So you have to assume that people already believe that. It's not that they are going to believe it. They already believe it. By getting to know people at a personal level and being transparent, we can at least exhibit that that's not what it's really about. This life with Christ is about his priorities. It's about finding life in him. It's not limited to this rules and regulation religion. The great thing about your generation is that you value these things like transparency and openness. And that people are comfortable saying, yes, we're broken and we're trying to be better, and no one looks at you differently in your age generation. We've got to be that way and take off these ridiculous Christian costumes that people put on. I won't even say people in this room where we're judging each other by how good we are and how we adhere to a certain rule that I don't know where it's coming from. How many of you have heard this phrase? You're not like other Christians. You heard that? That's often a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. <laughs> if you're doing something totally crazy, they're thinking, wow, I never thought you'd be a Christian. You know, That's not the good way to hear it. But when someone says, wow, I'm surprised. I didn't know there were Christians like that. That means you're starting to make a difference. They're seeing the difference right away. Use that. I hope that you're going to follow a way that is properly motivated in love, building relationships, and gets past all this. Let's pray and close. And pray specifically for a moment. I'm going to ask you to pray during some silent moment. Specifically for our church. The whole church. Maybe that's the only thing we can do that's in our power directly to affect this church. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to be guilty ourselves of pointing the finger too harshly at others, lest we become the same type of people that we're trying to avoid becoming. But Lord, it's so frustrating sometimes when we know the priorities of your heart. And those priorities are to love others, love you, take care of those in this world, worship the great God that we serve, Live a life of obedience that's worthy for you. To sacrifice, to be good stewards. And yet, Lord, it seems like the way that we practice this faith, this religion, has become so dogmatic, so judgmental. We've broken into so many pieces. So right now, Lord, just in the silence, if we just lift up to you this whole church and the hearts of all the people that are in it, how are we ever going to reach the lost, Lord, when we spend all our time fighting each other? Let's pray for our church. Lord, we have a heart for those who are outside of Christianity. And if we don't have that heart, give it to us, Lord. So many of us in this room have been fortunate enough to know you. We've received the gift that you've given. 
there's still time for so many people, Lord, as we continue to think about how outsiders see Christianity. May our heart grow for those people. May we continually pray for your church that it would be a good witness in this world, that we would turn away from pride and from fear and from all the things that tear us apart. We would focus on you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.